Hello and welcome to Disseminate the Computer Science Research Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Wardby. A reminder that if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us through Buy Me A Coffee. It really helps us to continue making the podcast. It gives me great pleasure today, so I'm joined by Roger Willeff, who will be telling us everything we need to know about Marius GNN, Resource Efficient Out-of-Core Training of Graph Neural Networks. Roger is a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Roger, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, let's jump straight in then. So can you maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became interested in systems and machine learning research? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a computer science PhD student at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm in my fourth year now, so getting getting, you know, at least sort of halfway done, maybe. Working with Professor Theo Rakatsanas, who was at UW, and he's since... Uh, transitioned to ETH Zurich and now at Apple, but still working with him. And yeah, at a high level, sort of been focusing on resource efficient training of large scale uh, machine learning models with a lot of sort of specific focus on graph neural networks. And I, I come from a physics background. So in undergrad, I kind of primarily did physics. But then toward the end of undergrad, sort of in my senior year, um, started transitioning towards CS because I kind of always like to uh, program and, and you have this sort of creativity in CS that you don't necessarily have in physics, right? Where you get to sort of design and build your own um, ideas. So yeah, so so CS sort of kind of became my sort of main area of focus toward the end of undergrad. And then, you know, once you sort of get in CS, uh, obviously machine learning these days is very exciting. You know, it's becoming sort of more and more mainstream and, and sort of lots of machine learning models and, and sort of the models are continuing to get bigger and bigger and more expensive to train and to run as we all know so that that, that makes you know machine learning systems and, and making training and inference of these machine learning models sort of a very exciting and very timely topic and it also gives you sort of a, a nice um, machine learning systems give you a nice sort of like middle ground in cs where you get to sort of in, in some sense in my opinion maybe have the best of both worlds where you're sort of like building software a lot of programming, a lot of uh, building things that others can use, but also you're sort of working on the algorithmic side of machine learning models, which, you know, transformers, et cetera, that, that everyone's very excited about these days. Uh, so you get to be involved in everything. And so, yeah, that's kind of, a, you know, it kind of evolved naturally, but sort of over time in undergrad and at the end of undergrad, just started getting more and more excited about kind of the, the machine learning with with how the times were going and also just because, you know, love to program and love to sort of get my hands dirty. So that's kind of the long winded story. Um, <laughs> you know, don't know like yeah. sort of maybe like Eureka moments, but uh, yeah, just over time gravitated toward, toward that field. Awesome <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So you see you fourth year at the moment. So, I mean, how long, how much road is there left to run there? So you got drinking another year, two years. Yeah. Something like that. And try to, <laughs> try to start thinking about finishing up here um, in the next year or so, but we'll see how it goes. Um, nice. It's not, nice. you know, there's no hard deadline and there's no major rush. Well, let's get stuck into to Marius GNN. So, I mean, I think I'm pronouncing it right. right? It's, it's, yep. It's Marius, right? Cool. Yep, yeah. Marius, you know, um, yeah. So like, what is, what's the, the, the backstory there with Marius? What, what is Marius? Like what, has it got some meaning? It's like a Greek god or something. Yeah, it's a it's a Roman general, I think. Oh, okay. Um, it's uh yeah, so the the name is sort of 
the name was chosen by some of the co-leads sort of on the Mars project, Jason Mahoney. And, and so there's sort of been two works, um, an original work, which we called like the Marius system. And then Marius GNN is sort of a, a follow-up and an extension, which kind of extends the original work to GNN's graph neural network specifically. So, okay, cool. So, yeah. so let's, let's kind of dig into some background and like set the listener up there yeah. for what we're going to be talking about today. So can you tell us a little bit more about kind of, um, graph neural networks, GNN's kind of give us some backstory there. So I think the best place to start is sort of just like with what is a graph, right? So basically, the idea here is that we have sort of the input to these graph neural networks is a graph, which is a really sort of abstract and general data structure. But basically, you have some set of nodes, which are like objects. And then you have some set of relationships, which connects those nodes together. And we call those edges. So you have this graph, which is made up of nodes and edges. And again, yeah, very flexible data structure. Um, and often sort of the best representation for a lot of forms of data. So for example, you know, some classic graphs would be like a social network where you have sort of nodes are, are people or businesses, et cetera, like on Facebook. And then you have sort of, you know, the edges are, are friendships between them or something. But, you know, beyond sort of that sort of standard example, you have things like road networks, right? Cities connected by roads, you have even more sort of scientific and, and maybe complicated graphs like molecules, you know, made up of atoms and bonds, chemical bonds between them. So sort of, you know, a wide variety of things that can be represented as graphs. And then often these graphs have, have information associated with them. So, for example, the nodes in the graph can have some associated data, which we usually call in like in machine learning, you know, features, right? So, for example... You know, the cities in a road network may have some information about traffic laws there or, or whatever, density, traffic, things like that. And, and you can sort of group all that information for each node into some sort of something that you would call like a feature vector. For example, again, for another example, like social network, uh, you might have information about the business, information about the, the person, things that they like, things they don't like, which may, you know, give you some valuable information about who they might be friends with, things like that. Um, so these are sort of additional information that you include in the graph along with the nodes and the edges, uh, these feature vectors for all the nodes. And basically at a high level, that's sort of the, the input that you're working with when you're working with graph neural networks. And then once you sort of have that input, graph neural networks are just a, basically a specific type of neural network that's designed to operate over that input. So just like you have, you know, convolutional neural networks designed to operate over images and, you know, transformers for, for text, you have graph neural networks for that sort of input data structure, which is made up of these nodes, their, their feature information, and then the, the edges between them. And, you know, it's, it's sort of, again, a mirror of, of a standard neural network where once you have that, that, that input data, the idea is to sort of successively transform that input data through a series of layers into sort of more meaningful representations so that you can do some sort of downstream task. So yeah, happy to happy to give a little bit more detail about oh, exactly what those layers fantastic. do, which I think will be useful. Yeah. 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 I have I have a quick question before we go into those sure. layers a little bit deeper. Um on the feature vectors, um you said that yeah. they're associated with the nodes. Do the edges also have feature vectors or do you have to put yeah. that information in the in the node? Yeah, you can you can definitely put uh, uh, feature vectors on the edges as well. That's sort of like uh, you know GNN's version two in some sense, right? Okay, so right, the, simplest, yeah. the simplest and kind of the main 
um, sort of set of standard benchmarks is just usually node node information. But the the feature vectors, the edges can have feature vectors as well for sure. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted you when you were talking about the the yeah. modules about the, the the different layers you can have and and stuff. Yeah, no problem. No, I think it's good to take a take a pause after you sort of have the the input in mind and and the basic idea because. The, the layers are a little bit more complicated, but basically what, what the idea is that each GNN layer is going to take the sort of vector representations, these feature vectors for all the nodes, and then the graph structure, which are the edges. And basically you're going to use that information to produce new vector representations for each node, which are sort of like higher level representations. And those higher level representations, you create them by combining the sort of original vectors, the original features of each node with the features of their of the neighbors of that node. And the neighbors here are defined by nodes, which are connected to each other by, by edges, through edges. So, you know, it's usually helpful to give an example. So the, the kind of common example that I've given in, in some talks is, you know, consider a, a graph that is made up of maybe the states uh, of, of the United States. And, and, you know, the node that we're, that we care about is the node for the state Wisconsin. Right. And then we have maybe an edge to neighboring nodes, Illinois and Minnesota, right. Neighbors of, of Wisconsin geographically. And then maybe we have some base set of features for each state. Right. So for one for Wisconsin, one for Illinois and Minnesota could be, you know, dependent on whatever the downstream task is you know, population, things like that. But let's let's group all that features that we have for each of those three nodes into some vector representation that we, we usually call H0. So the zero here, meaning that it's sort of the first representation of that node. And then, you know, we, we label that feature vector as H. And then what the, the first GNN layer is going to do is it's going to compute a higher level representation for the node Wisconsin, which we're going to call H1. So the one being sort of after the first layer. And you compute that higher level representation by aggregating the, the original features that you had for the, the state Wisconsin, H0, with the, with the original features that you had for Illinois and Minnesota, the H0 for those two nodes. And the aggregation function is really like the sort of neural network layer. And that's what has sort of learnable weights, parameterized function that, that gets updated through gradient descent, just like a standard neural network layer. And so, for example, you know, that, that aggregation function could be you sort of sum the three feature vectors, three H zeros together, and then you multiply by a weight matrix, which is learnable, a parameterized weight matrix. And then that gives you the H1 for the node Wisconsin, for example. So that's kind of the idea. Um, you have these original feature vectors for each node, and then you sort of transform them into new feature vectors for each node at each GNN layer. And that transformation is done by running the sort of feature vectors through some parameterized aggregation function and combining them with the feature vectors of the neighbors. So the idea is to sort of take your information that you have about your node and to sort of augment it and transform it using the information from your neighbors. And then once you have that sort of H1 for the node Wisconsin, you can compute H1 for Illinois, Minnesota, all the other states, for example. And then you can sort of, again, stack another layer on, compute sort of H2 for the node Wisconsin, if you wanted to, and so on. And you can keep doing this until you get some higher level representation that you're sort of happy with, right, which has learned enough information from yourself and from your neighbors. And then you can use that sort of output, call it like H10, for, for example, for some sort of downstream task, like node classification, right? So then you could use it for prediction, just like you would the output of a convolutional neural network, right, for image classification, 
You can use the output of all the nodes in the graph, like all the higher level representations for all the nodes to do some sort of graph classification, just by sort of combining those, all the nodes in the graph together, the features of all the nodes in the graph together. Or you can do some sort of edge prediction task if you wanted to. So you have sort of maybe two nodes and you have their two vector representations, two higher level vector representations, and then you sort of use those two vectors to decide something about is there an edge between these two nodes um is there is there not an edge things like that so that's basically the the gist of uh, chnns and i have a question on the, on the graph um classification at the yeah. end so is that basically sort of saying this graph is i don't know kind of in the context of your example of of the states of the us like what would what would i, what would I be classifying there basically like, okay, so, so is, maybe a better one, maybe a better yeah. one is um for that example is is some sort of like molecule where you have you know, sort of a, a, a molecule is, represents a graph and you want to sort of predict some some information about that molecule. Does it interact with this drug? Does it, you know, um, could it be used as a candidate to, you know, you sort of like drug discovery, those sort of things. That's that's maybe a better example for, for graph classification. Node classification, a good example for that is like citation network. You have like a paper, all the archive papers, um, and so each node is a paper and then they're connected to other papers based on the citations. And you want to sort of do like automated grouping. So these are CS papers. These are machine learning papers. These are physics papers, that sort of thing. Edge prediction, which is also often called link prediction as well. The common example there is you want to sort of discover new edges. So you sort of um, you want to predict new friendships, right? And so Facebook wants to predict who you should be friends with. You want to, again, you can do sort of drug discovery if you have sort of a different graph, but now each node is like a molecule and you have like interactions between known interactions between molecules based on prior experiments and you want to sort of predict unknown interactions, things like that. Um, so all of these things, yeah, there's a lot of applications. Awesome stuff. That's great. Um, great stuff. So yeah, let, let's let's dig into kind of the background for for Marius GNN. And so you said sure. that a lot of it is that doing this training is very resource or doing it in a resource efficient manner is like quite challenging over large scale graphs. Yep. What, why is that? And kind of how big are these graphs? How big? When does it become a challenge? Yeah. So I think so. One, now that we've kind of like established the notion of uh, what we're working with, the data that we're working with. Sort of the key, the key first issue to realize is that we have these feature vectors for every node in the graph, right? At the very least, maybe even for the edges, as you mentioned. And then that means we sort of have to store them. And then we have to sort of store feature vectors for very large graphs. And that's really where the sort of start of the challenges comes in, right? So for example, large scale graphs these days have billions of edges and nodes. You can take one concrete example, which is the hyperlink graph from the, the web common crawl dump from 2012. So basically, each each node in that graph is, is a web page, and then the hyperlinks between web pages give you the edges. And this is sort of even, you know, 11 years old now. But even that hyperlink graph already had billions of nodes, 3 billion nodes to be exact, and then 128 billion edges. And so if you say, okay, well, I have to store some sort of feature vector for each of those 3 billion nodes... You know, if it's a sort of hundred dimensional or a thousand dimensional vector, then you have sort of, you know, a hundred or a thousand floats times three billion, right? So you have large amount of data to store. I think we used uh, 50 or a hundred when we were, when we were training with it. And we had like 3.5 terabytes of total just data just to store the input, which just means storing basically the node features and the edges. 
And then once you're sort of working with that kind of data size, then that gives you sort of a host of challenges of sort of systems challenges and, and sort of training challenges. The first being that, you know, that exceeds the, the memory capacity of any GPU accelerator that we kind of currently have on the market. So, you know, you can't store the graph in GPU memory. And so you either have to sort of offload to CPU memory, but even even CPU memory, you know, getting 3.4 terabytes of CPU memory is is that's also a challenge, right? So, so you potentially even have to go even further where you have to scale out to sort of a distributed CPU memory or, or sort of a you know, more complex single machine. And then at the same time, though, you can't just sort of abandon the GPUs completely because you do need to sort of use those things to do the matrix multiplies that are in all the sort of GNN layer transformations. So, so very quickly, you are, in, you are sort of forced to have some sort of mixed CPU, maybe even a distributed CPU, GPU training environment, um, where you have to sort of move data between sort of all, all hierarchies, all memory hierarchies, and sort of even between machines, between CPU and GPU, etc. And, and that sort of introduces kind of the, some of the key challenges. This is sort of how do you, how do you go about doing, doing all that sort of data movement and, and etc. Um, so at a high level, that's this, that's this sort of, uh, main challenge, right, is that very quickly you get a large da- amount of data with these graphs, and and that kind of causes you to, you're forced to use these sort of complicated full memory hierarchy architectures, et cetera. Yeah, nice. So kind of given that then, given that sort of the lay of the land there, what are the kind of state-of-the-art current solutions out there in the distributed fashion? How, how are they architected and kind of what are the problems with them? Basically, um, they they sort of opt for that architecture that I just described, which is basically, you know, you can start in the GPU memory for small graphs, and then you sort of fall back to the CPU memory for larger graphs. Um, and then for even larger graphs, you go to sort of a distributed CPU uh, memory where you have maybe the graph partitioned across a sort of set of CPU machines. Um, and then you sort of create, you know, mini batches for training in this sort of CPUs in these distributed CPUs. And you sort of transfer them to the GPUs uh, for the sort of model computation. But we found sort of the existing solutions at the time when we were sort of starting this Marius GNN work, primarily sort of distributed DGL or DGL, um, we, we found that they were pretty expensive. And basically, there's sort of two main reasons for that. Because the first is that no matter what you do, when you when you make a, this sort of decision to just, just sort of scale out and, and get a lot of like sort of distributed CPU memory to, to scale to these large graphs, then you sort of are forced to pay for those resources no matter what, um, right? So if you think about like on AWS, the sort of standard mach- GPU machines that have like V100 GPUs, they only have maybe at maximum 500 gigabytes of memory. So to scale the hyperlink, you would need already on the order of 10 of those machines to get into the sort of three or four terabyte range and and each of those is already you know twenty four dollars an hour, so you're very quickly paying many hundreds of dollars per hour. And then and then the second issue is that you sort of have low GPU utilization as as sort of by default in these sort of complex complex architectures because you have this sort of distributed CPU memory, and then you have to sort of transfer create mini batches across these multiple machines which may require communication between the machines. And then you have to transfer those mini batches to the GPU, et cetera. Um, so we found that these, these systems, not just DJL, but PyTorch Geometric and some of the other popular ones, 
they have low GPU utilization and maybe, you know, 30, 40%. And that GPU utilization gets even lower as the just the deployment becomes more complicated. So as you scale to larger graphs and you have uh, multiple machines and more machines, then the, the GPU utilization sort of slowly continues to drop, you know, down to maybe 30, 20%. So basically in the end, you end up having a lot of these expensive resources that you're paying for, which aren't fully utilized. So it's, it's sort of not a great, it's not a good use of the money in some sense, right? And then that's sort of the, that's kind of the kind of key problem potentially with the, with the uh, existing soli- solutions. Nice. Yeah. I mean, at $24 an hour, I know why Jeff Bezos is so rich, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, that's just crazy. Yeah. There's some, there's some like Lambda AI is trying to, to come along with some of these cheaper cloud-based VMs. Um, but yeah, generally those costs add up quickly for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely something you won't want to leave running longer than you had to as well. But exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to minimize so, the time that you have to run those things. So I guess kind of with all these, these problems in mind, you revisited this question of when do we need distributed training for GNNs? So I guess the, what's the answer? So, so the idea behind Mars GNN is to sort of first, you know, minimize the costs, uh, by optimizing as much as you can on a single machine. And once you sort of have fully optimized the single machine, and then you sort of, you know, if you if you have all of the resources you fully utilize on a single machine, and you still need to further reduce runtime, that's when you need distributed training, but only then, right? So, and then the question then in Marius GNN is basically, how do you, how do you sort of fully utilize the, the resources on a single machine? That's kind of the key question. Yeah, it reminds me of the cost paper, right? And because I think that was focusing on like stream processing systems, was it? Or was it, or was it graph processing systems? I can't quite remember. Yeah, it was it, focus graph was processing, but sort of like a standard graph, like page rank, more sort of things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah graph algos, like right? And, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. So let, let's let's talk about um, Marius GNN. So like, tell us how does it work? So I mean, we can kick things off with the system architecture, and then we can talk into some of its sort of its its, its key features. Yeah. So I think um, so. Maybe maybe I'll I'll spend a little bit of time talking a little bit more about a little bit background of sort of what what are the key challenges first once you move off the GPU right. So we we talked about we have this uh, these sort of node features for every for every node, and then you know those can sort of quickly exceed the GPU memory capacity. So just give maybe like a couple minutes of like you know once you put those in the CPU, what do you have to do, and then that'll sort of um, lead us into sort of the Mars GNN system architecture. So once you sort of move your graph and the, the the node feature representations and you sort of store those in CPU memory, then you have to sort of do this mixed CPU, GPU, mini batch training. And basically the idea is that you start with some sort of mini batch, which is sort of like a set of training examples that you sample from the graph. So those could be a set of sort of maybe nodes or they could be edges depending on the task. But let's consider it's just a set of nodes. Um, so you say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, node classification for these set of nodes. So I have some labels for them. And then, um, you know, I have their base, their original features. And so, so what do you need to do? So first you need to sample some of their neighbors so that you can sort of have these required information for the GNN layers, right? The GNN layers need to know the, some of the neighbors to be able to do these aggregation functions. And then once you sort of have those neighbors sampled, you can then get the sort of 
initial H0 feature vectors for all the original nodes that you started with in your mini batch, as well as the neighbors, right? You need the feature vectors for the neighbors. And that that whole process is sort of like mini batch preparation. And you need to do that all on the CPU because that's where your data is stored. And only once you've done that, then you can transfer all of that information to the GPU to actually be able to do the, the model computation. So that that kind of, you know, we've we've been kind of hinting at once you move off the GPU, you have all of this sort of complex steps that need to be done on the CPUs and then this data movement, which can can limit the GPU utilization. But that's just the the idea in a little bit more detail. And then, you know, the, the kind of key other I think there is that this this neighborhood sampling is sort of specific to GNNs, right? So every time you want to compute the GNN output for a specific node, you need to go and sample the neighbors. So that's sort of a a new thing in, in GNNs compared to maybe like image classification, for example. And it's important to note that this it's often for these large graphs required to, to actually sample the neighbors. In other words, not use all the neighbors of a specific node, because for, for really large graphs, you know, one node, think about like the Twitter graph with like, it's like, a, you know, users and then their followers, some graphs like, you know, Obama or, or whatever, Elon Musk, right. They're going to have like millions and millions of followers, so you can't use all of their neighbors because then just their neighbors alone are like too big for the GPU memory, right? So this is sort of the 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 the, the difficulty in a little bit more detail about you know once you move off the GPU is is you have this data movement issue that you have to sort of you know create these things off device and then transfer these mini batches and then creating these mini batches themselves is not necessarily trivial because of this neighborhood sampling step where for all the nodes in the mini batch, you have to like sort of look up their neighbors, maybe do some random sampling process, et cetera. So with that in mind, the, the sort of key ideas in Marius GNN are to sort of um, first make that mixed CPU, GPU, mini batch training as efficient as possible, right? We want to sort of maximize the GPU utilization. We want to get hundred percent GPU utilization, which means the GPU is always sort of busy computing um, the forward pass and the backward pass of the GNN, which means we need to figure out how to make the overhead of this data movement and this mini batch preparation on the CPU. We need to minimize that as much as possible. And then the second key idea is that once we have a large, even larger graph, right, which sort of um, exceeds the memory capacity of the CPU, then we don't want to go to multiple CPUs, or distributed CPU memory, because then we're going to need to sort of coordinate mini batch preparation and data movement between CPUs themselves before having to transfer to the GPU. Um, so instead, we're going to take a different approach, which is we're going to store the sort of even larger graph that exceeds the CPU memory capacity. We're going to store that on disk, um, and therefore we don't have to actually pay for any more CPU resources to to scale beyond the the graphs that fit in CPU memory. So those are sort of the key ideas. And then those kind of give you naturally um, the system architecture in Marius GNN, which is basically sort of a, a full memory hierarchy and out of core um, pipelined training uh, architecture, which means that we sort of use disk, we use CPU memory, and we use the GPU memory and the GPU, sort of three layers of the hierarchy. And there's sort of two pipelines so there's sort of the first piece, which is the storage layer, which is basically responsible for transferring data from disk to CPU memory and sort of pipelining and overlapping data movements there. And then there's sort of the 
uh, CPU to GPU memory piece of the of the architecture, which is responsible for you know creating mini batches in the CPU and then transferring them to the GPU and and sort of optimizing that piece of the of uh, the of the architecture, pipelining that, making sure the mini batch preparation is is fast, making sure the the, the data movement is is pipelined, et cetera, so that you can sort of maximize your GPU utilization. And then, yeah, we usually kind of call that piece the processing layer, which is yeah responsible for the sort of mixed CPU GPU mini batch training. And basically, the idea for for each of these pieces is that you sort of break the architecture into sort of a set of stages. So, for example, if we think about the CPU to GPU stage, the processing layer, in order to sort of, you know, one piece of the puzzle for maximizing GPU utilization is to sort of pipeline all of these, these pieces of the, the processing layer so that you can sort of overlap the, all, of this, all of the steps and sort of overlap data movement and, and mini-batch preparation with the mini-batch computation on the GPU. So you basically separate all of these, these sort of higher-level pieces of the system architecture, the storage layer and the processing layer, you separate their individual components into stages, pipeline stages, and then you connect them by queues and you give each sort of stage its own set of workers. So for example, for the processing layer, you might have a set of CPU workers, which is responsible for creating mini batches on the CPU. You might have another set of workers, which is responsible for transferring mini batches from the CPU to the GPU. And then you might have another set of workers, which is actually the GPU worker doing the, the computation themselves. And then each sort of set of workers can, can in parallel, you know, create a mini batch while another one is in parallel transferring the, the previous mini batch to the GPU. And they can just read and write their input and output to sort of set of queues um, so they, you know, they don't have to worry about sort of synchronization, right? Sort of a standard kind of like multi-consumer, multi-producer, you know, pipeline. And this this is sort of, the first piece of the puzzle to, to to sort of maximize GPU utilization. So that's that's kind of the high level overview of the system architecture. Maybe that was a lot said at once. You, you, I don't know if you have any questions or I've got I've got I do have one question. So you you, you it's like cause I'm kind of imagining this kind of a production line in my head, right? And these, these exactly like a, con- a conveyor belt, right? Uh, exactly. Sort of as things move along. Do you have like a What's what's the uh, the communication like between the, the between the different stages? Is there like an overseer slash coordinator that's sort of informing these workers to speed up or slow down or whatever to kind of keep the whole system balanced? Or is no. that not really? So, yeah, there's right. no coordinator to do that, but there is yeah. there is there are ways to sort of throttle the pipeline at different pieces. So the way we do it is is like in the configuration file when you sort of launch Marius or Marius GNN you basically specify the number of workers for each of these stages. And then you also specify the queue stages um, in the queue sizes, sorry, the queue sizes between each stage. So for example, you know, if the CPU mini batch preparation workers are, you know, really fast and they're, you know, putting a ton of stuff on the queue that's for the transfer worker, um, you know, once that queue fills up according to some size that you set, then the mini batch work preparation workers have to wait, right? So they can't keep creating mini batches and putting them on this queue. Um, and then, and then they just, you know, they just sleep basically, right? Until, until there's space again. Um, there's no back pressure there from the queue. It's saying like, slow down a little bit. You give me too exactly. much information. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then there's oh. a t- sort of like global back pressure, which is there's a, there's a global limit on the number of mini batches that can be in the pipeline at once. Right. 
Okay. So that that's, and that's, yeah, that's useful for sort of like staleness issues, which are. So, I mean, maybe this isn't relevant. I'm going to kind of off on a tangent a little bit here. Um, but is is the, the resource pool that each of these stages has, is that dynamic at all? Or is it fixed? You said up front, it's a config parameter you set, or is, it, is there a way to sort of, that to be dynamic at runtime and change. Yeah. So, so right now it's, um, right now it's fixed, um, in, in the config, uh, up front and it's, it's even sort of fixed without necessarily any information on how to set that. Right. It's sort of like, right, okay. it's a magic number. yeah, there's no like magical exactly. Um, but we have, you know, thought about and even explored a little bit, making it dynamic and, and making it dynamic is certainly doable. It's just, uh, you know, it hasn't made the top of our priority list, but, um, you can definitely imagine dynamically measuring this, the the size of these queues. You know, figuring out which one is the bottleneck, reallocating resources to sort of, um, you know, reduce the bottleneck, et cetera. And you know that that's something that that can be done for sure. Yeah, one for future work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so let's go into it in a little bit more deal. And so there's this there's this data structure you use in Mario yep. called Dense. So yep. uh, what does the acronym stand for? I'm guessing it's an acronym, right? And then yeah, how does it work? Yeah, it stands for it stands for the Delta Encoding of Neighborhood Samples. Nice. Um, as we've been discussing a little bit, you have this um, mixed CPU GPU mini batch training. That's sort of the the first piece of the puzzle. Once you have a large graph that exceeds the GPU memory capacity, and when we've sort of said a little bit, um, you know, we you store the graph, the nodes, their feature vectors in CPU memory, and then you sort of um, sample mini batches, which basically think of that again, just as a set of nodes for each node, then you need to sample their neighbors. You're still on the CPU, right? Because you still need to, you need to sample the neighbors on the CPU first so that you can get their feature vectors from the CPU before you transfer to the GPU. And, and so basically this dense data structure comes in, in that, in that piece of the puzzle and this mini batch preparation processing, uh, mini batch preparation. And, and the reason it's sort of needed is that that neighborhood sampling step is very slow relative to the other steps in the pipeline. So, for example, if you look at like PyTorch Geometric for, for a three or four layer network, it'll take 1200 milliseconds or something to sample the, the neighbors. And it only takes 100 milliseconds maybe to do the computation on the GPU. So even if you have this pipeline where you're sort of you know, allocating more workers to do the, the mini batch processing and the neighborhood sampling, you still have this sort of large differential to where even with, you know, a lot of workers running in parallel, it's going to be hard to saturate the GPU because the GPU is by far not the bottleneck. The, the CPU preparation and even the data transfer is much slower than the GPU computation. So in order to sort of sat, you know, saturate the GPU, it's more than just pipelining and you really need to bring down the, the neighborhood sampling time as much as possible. And, and why is this neighborhood sampling sort of so slow? Well, fundamentally these GNNs are up against like a sort of exponential scaling issue. Um, so if you have a multi-layer GNN, you need to actually sample a multi-hop neighborhood, uh, which grows exponentially in size. So, so what do I, what do I mean by that? So, for example, if we have a two-layer GNN, that means we want to compute H2 for some node, right? Um, let's say node A. And we start with node A in our mini-batch, and we want to compute, like, the output of a two-layer GNN for that node to do, like, node classification, let's say. 
So that means we want to compute the, the second layer representation, H2, as we've kind of been calling them. And, and the representation H2 for, for node A that we have, it depends on the representation H1 for node A, but it also depends on the representation H1 for the neighbors of node A. And, and the, the representation for H1, all of the representations H1 are also, you know, sort of computed representations, right? Which means that the, the H1 representation for node A depends on the H0 representation for node A. That's fine. But the H1 representation for the neighbors of node A, which we need to compute um, H2 for node A, that, that re those representations depend on their neighbors, right? So in other words, if we have a node B, which is a neighbor of node A, we need the neighbors of node B in order to compute H1 for node B, right? So this is sort of like a, a two-hop neighbor of node A you can think of, right? You go from node A to its neighbors to their neighbors, and that's how you compute sort of a two-layer um, GNN. And you can sort of, con you can think of this as, you know, it continues as you go, right? So if you have a three-layer network, uh, three-layer GNN, you want to compute H3 for node A, for some node A, then you need the three-hop neighborhood of node A. So when you're doing the mini-batch preparation, you need to sort of know this ahead of time, how many layers you need to compute. And therefore, that, that tells you how many sort of hops away from these nodes you need to sample. Um, and, and these hops, these multi-hop neighborhoods grow exponentially, right? So because if you start with, um, let's say, you know, 10 nodes, and then you sample 10 neighbors for each of those nodes, well, then now you have 100 nodes. And then if, again, you sample sort of 10 neighbors for each of those 100 nodes, well, now you have 1,000 nodes, right? So you sort of very quickly have this exponential increase in the sort of number of nodes which are participating in this mini batch because of how these multi-hop neighborhoods are constructed. <laughs> so yeah, so just to reiterate, right, these, uh, these multi-layer GNNs, they require these multi-hop neighborhoods, which are constructed sort of step-by-step, step, right? You start with a set of nodes, you sample their neighbors, and then the second step is to sample the neighbors of the first set of neighbors, right, and so on. Um, and this sort of whole set of neighborhood sampling, this is really sort of why it's, it's slow and why it's sort of um, the kind of key bottleneck because of this exponential explosion and because this is sort of a very complicated process, actually, in the end. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so basically, that, that becomes, yeah, that becomes a, a big bottleneck. Um, like I said, you have PyTorch Geometric, it's like over 10 times slower, same thing with DGL than the computation itself. Does that, does that make sense? It's a little hard to yeah, see without no, these yeah. sort of like diagrams, but Hopefully yeah, no, it, it amplifies, have, right? Yeah. Like over, yeah. over, like it's guess that kind of an inherent property of graphs. I mean, there's always that kind exactly. of example of like you only in six hops you can go across the whole exactly, graph, yep. right? So it's the same exactly. sort of problem manifesting there in the sense that you end up right. With, the more layers you add, you want to you on the H10, then you're gonna have like it's gonna explode, exactly. right? Yeah, you're gonna have yeah. the whole graph exactly. After yeah. a few layers, you have so many nodes participating in this multi-hop mm. neighborhood that that you really have to that it, it really just, the, the sampling time really just blows up. Yeah, so once you once you sort of have that in mind, then the sort of the key idea behind dense is to recognize that in this sort of expansion, as you're sort of starting from a small set of nodes and you're expanding out in the graph as you sample more and more hops away from those nodes, the, the key observation is that you're going to return to nodes that you've already seen. In other words, because of the the... the 
how the graph is structured, you know, the neighbors of some node, the, the two hop neighbors of some node may be a one hop neighbor of another node, right? And and that's the sort of key sort of observation that, that we try to take advantage of with dense. Another, another way to say that is when you do these sort of multi-hop sampling in existing systems, you perform a lot of redundant one-hop sampling to construct these multi-hop neighborhoods, right? Because these, these multi-hop neighborhoods are constructed by first sampling the one-hop neighbors for a set of nodes and then sampling the one-hop neighbors for their neighbors and then, you know, sort of just by building, you know, one hop at a time. And the observation that we're talking about here is you sort of, you build the one hop neighborhood of the same node multiple times because it reappears at different pieces in this overall multi-hop neighborhood. You basically are expanding the one hop neighbors of the same nodes many, many times, and that's a lot of redundant work. So that's what we're going to try to get rid of with dense. I'll try to give like just another quick example um, of, of this redundancy with like, let's say we have, we have two nodes, A and B. And, and again, we're trying to sample their two hop neighborhood for both of those nodes. Now we have a mini batch. They're both part of the, they're both part of our mini batch. And we want their two hop neighborhood. So if we sample the one hop neighbors of node A to start with, let's say that it happens to have a neighbor, B is its neighbor, right? So now in the second step, when we're sampling the neighbors of the neighbors of A, we're going to sample the one hop neighbors of node B. But we would have already done that in the first step because we needed the one hop neighbors of node B and the first step, right? Um, so this these nodes reappear and you sort of end up sampling one hop neighbors for the same nodes many, many times in these multi-hop neighborhoods. Does that make sense without any figures? It's a little hard yeah, to yeah. follow these sort of like... <laughs> but at yeah, a high no, level, yeah. it makes sense yeah. when you think about a graph, right? You... you if you're traversing a graph, but you're traversing from many nodes at once, like think about doing a random walk, but you're starting a ran- like 10 random walks from 10 nodes. Those random, those random walks are likely to sort of like maybe, you know, come across each other, right? At which point you can sort of reuse the old random walk from that point, or you can sort of start your own new random walk again. So yeah, the idea behind dense is to sort of minimize this redundancy of sampling one hop neighbors for the same nodes. Um, and, and the way to do that is just to cache and reuse the one hop neighbors, those sampled one hop neighbors for nodes that you've already seen earlier during this multi-hop neighborhood construction. Uh, that's the high level idea. Nice. No, and, that and makes the, total sense. Yeah. 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 And so basically dense is this data structure that, that we use to do that caching and reusing and tracking because you need to sort of track which nodes you've seen while you're constructing these multi-hop neighborhoods and you need to track their one-hop neighborhoods and basically dense is the data structure to sort of do that. And the, and the, the way it does that is by sort of, again, building these multi-hop neighborhoods um, sort of step-by-step step. And, and it uses, each step now is built using an incremental delta. So you sort of sample the one-hop neighbors for some nodes, A and B, for example, in step one, and then in step two, you're going to sample, you know, the one hop neighbors for the, the neighbors of nodes A and B, but only for the neighbors for which you have yet to already sample one hop neighbors, right? So you sort of each delta is a, is a new set of nodes. And, and those are the new ones that you're going to sample one hop neighbors for in the next step. But that delta are, are completely new nodes. You haven't seen them before in, in the previous sort of steps. And that's basically basically the idea behind dense. 
And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time developing sort of efficient algorithms as well to go along with constructing it um, or to go along with this high level idea, right? You also still need to be able to construct it quickly on the CPU. And then you also need to be able to use this data structure on the GPU, right? Once you have dense, you, you still need to be able to read it and find out the multi-top neighborhoods on the GPU because you need that for the computation. And so we have some sort of parallel algorithms on the CPU to, to construct dense. And we have, and it's, it's sort of nice for GPU kernels as well. Yeah. And yeah, it, it worked, it really worked really quite well in the end. It allowed us to sort of sample, you know, up to 15 times faster for three and four layer GNNs. And it also allowed us to even do the computation faster because it sort of gave us this um, compressed format of these multi-op neighborhoods and was very amenable to, you know, sort of optimized GPU kernels. And and the scaling, it works really well with, as the, it works even better as the number of layers increase, which makes sense, right? The more layers you have, the more redundancy you have in these multi-op neighborhoods. As you said, you know, once you get to sort of five, six layers, you have almost the whole graph. Um, and so you can see dense actually outperform like optimized sampling kernels that are specifically developed um, to minimize sampling time. Like for example, those in next door and it, you know, dense out starts outperforming them after three, four layers, just because it scales so much better with respect to the number of GNN layers. Awesome. So, I mean, this kind of, there's two other sort of features that you mentioned in your paper about marriage. Maybe you can give us sort of like a, uh, the rundown of how like the, the partition replacement policies work and the authorship, and then we can talk some more about the numbers and the experiments and stuff yep. like let's see how like fast and tell us how fast Marius kind of kind of goes. Yeah. So yeah. once we once you have that um, pipeline and dense data structure, that gives you sort of the CPU to GPU piece, right? And then the next piece is like, well, what if the graph doesn't fit in CPU memory? Um, so then again, as we said, you have sort of two options. You can get a bunch of CPUs and do some sort of like distributed CPU memory and then distributed training process. Um, but in Mars, we sort of kind of continue with this theme we have where we're like going to, you know, extract everything we can out of a single machine. And and with a single machine, you always have this sort of disk available to you that, that that's not really made use of, right? So you're sort of paying for it. It's not the dominant cost. The dominant cost is the GPUs and then the CPUs. But you are you do have this available. And so, you know, why not try to use it? And basically, the high-level idea behind disk-based training is that you're going to sort of then now you're going to store your sort of graph and the base node feature vectors on disk. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as just sort of having a pipeline where you do mini batch preparation on disk and then you know move that mini batch to the CPU and then move the mini batch to the GPU. Because first of all, you can't really do mini batch preparation on the disk, right? It's not a processing unit. And then also because of the fact that mini batch preparation requires um, an enormous amount of random access, right? So you're sort of randomly sampling the the training examples in the mini batch, and then you do all this neighborhood sampling, which is all random. Um, and the disk just doesn't have the ability to do random access at that granularity. So what what you have to do to use disk is you have to do this. You have to move data between disk and CPU memory using these larger sequential reads and writes. So the way we do that is we store the sort of the nodes and the edges of the graph on disk and the base feature vectors for each node, but we partition them. We partition the nodes and their feature vectors into these sequential blocks. And we also group the edges according to those, those partitions. And then once you have that data layout on disk, you can then load subsets of the graph into CPU memory by, by sequentially reading these blocks. So you read a sequence 
you know, sequentially read a subset of those partitions and their corresponding edges, and you bring that into memory. And that's a much more efficient way to sort of transfer data between disk and CPU memory. And then once you have the sort of subgraph in CPU memory, then you can do the same sort of mixed CPU, GPU training on that in-memory subgraph that we've been talking about using dense, using the pipeline, et cetera. And you can do random access to, to sample your training examples and your multi-hop neighborhoods all from that subgraph, which is in memory. And so once you have that sort of setup, then the, the question is, what do you do when not all partitions fit in CPU memory at once? And that's where you get into this notion of having to sort of load some subset of the partitions in CPU memory, um, train on the training examples in that subset, and then you have to swap some partition back out to disk and bring a new partition in. And so you get this partition swapping such that over a sequence of swaps, eventually you bring in the whole graph from disk into CPU memory by swapping partitions in and out. And that leads to the notion of having then some partition replacement policy, which decides um, what partitions you're going to have in memory and when you're going to have the partitions in memory. And then you sort of, the first thing you come you come to when you think about, okay, how do I design this partition replacement policy is that it should sort of minimize the number of swaps and therefore correspondingly minimize the number, the disk IO and the, the training time. And so, you know, we, we developed a policy that does that, that minimizes the number of swaps. It's called beta. That was sort of part of the original Marius uh, work. But what we found in Marius GNN when we tried to use that policy for more complicated GNN models is that it leads to lower accuracy compared to training when you just have the full graph in memory. So this setup of moving these partitions between disk and CPU memory uh, actually leads to sort of an accuracy drop compared to just buying a bigger machine with a bigger CPU memory, basically. And and that's where things get really kind of interesting with all the disk-based stuff in Mars GNN is to sort of understand why that is that is the case and then how you can sort of improve that. Um, and basically, at a high level, why does that occur? Well, it occurs because you're focusing heavily on the in-memory subgraph to generate your training examples and their neighborhoods. Um, so you're only doing random access to this subgraph instead of the full graph. And that leads to sort of a biased training process. So, so the, the idea, the, the, the sort of analogy here is to imagine that you have all of your images on disk. And then you just load in the images of like the cats into CPU memory. You train on those randomly. Then you swap those out. You load in the images of dogs. You train on those randomly. You swap those, so on and so forth. Instead of just putting all the images from all the classes in memory together and randomly sampling from all of them. So that's sort of the lack of randomness that you get by default almost because of this only random access to the CPU memory. And then you sort of do all of the training on this the data you have in CPU memory, you swap some out, you bring some new in, you focus on that for a little bit, then you do another swap, et cetera. So you get into this predicament, which is that when you use disk, in order to have high throughput, et cetera, you need to sort of do these sequential reads and writes and do these larger swaps, not randomly access disk. But then at the same time, in order to get high accuracy, you need to randomly access the whole graph. So it's actually, a, it's almost a you can't, it's like a conflict that you can't really necessarily solve because there's sort yeah, of yeah. two fundamentally different, you know, requirements for, for high accuracy and then also for high throughput. But in Mars, you know, we try to make a, a more flexible disk-based policy that allows us to sort of 
gets you know the best of both worlds in some sense cool yeah so should we talk numbers and experiments yeah sure so yeah tell us about the how you went like i don't guess evaluating marius gnn and what you compared it against and what your findings were yeah so at the time we we ran these experiments sort of dgl deep graph library and pytorch geometric were kind of the two most popular systems so we just compared basically the main experiments were end-to-end training in Mars GNN directly with those uh, two systems. And we, we focused on uh, node classification and link prediction tasks using sort of the largest graphs available, which are sort of the open graph benchmark graphs. And they, you have about 100 million nodes and maybe a few hundred million to a billion edges. And we focused just kind of on common models like GraphSage, the GraphSage GNN and um, Graph Attention Network uh, as well. And, and basically, the, the setup we used, yeah, we used the AWS GPU machines. Um, and for baselines, basically, since they require the graph to be in CPU memory, we basically, we chose the smallest machine, which had enough CPU memory uh, to actually store the graph. Um, but that smallest machine, you know, may have been a few hundred gigabytes of CPU memory. And, and potentially came with multiple GPUs. So we allowed the, the baselines to use those multiple GPUs if, the, if they required uh, a sufficiently large machine that had multiple GPUs. And, and for Marius GNN, what we did is we ran two versions. So we ran uh, one version, which was on that same machine as, as what the baselines required to store the graph in CPU memory. And so then we also just used sort of CPU and GPU training but we only used a single GPU for Marius GNN. And then we also ran a second version of Marius GNN, which was the disk-based training version, where we um, used the smallest GPU machine on AWS, uh, which didn't have enough CPU memory to store any of these graphs, but that, that's okay for the disk-based Marius GNN because we stored it on disk, and then we used the CPU as, as sort of that partition cache uh, with the partition replacement policy. That's sort of the experiment setup. And then the results, uh, what we found basically is that when Marius GNN is on the same machine as each of the, the, the baselines, and they're all sort of doing CPU, GPU training, uh, Marius was maybe three to four times faster than the baselines, even though it was only using a single GPU, and the baselines were often using um, maybe four or even eight GPUs. And that's that's because of the sort of reduced sampling time with dense and then uh, the pipelining. So we were able to sort of get very high GPU utilization. Uh, now, nowadays, we, we actually have 100% GPU utilization with Mars nice. GNN. And then the disk-based training gives you sort of a different a different option. So it was also uh, about a couple times faster than the baselines, but then it was uh, significantly cheaper as well because you're, you're on a much cheaper machine, maybe only a $3 machine instead of a $24 an hour machine. So we were able to reduce the training cost, um, you know, on, between one and two orders of magnitude, up to, up to sixty four times, if I, if I remember correctly. And this was pretty consistent across both uh, node classification and link prediction uh, that we saw these sort of numbers. I mean, then some some great yeah. numbers. <laughs> great. Are there any areas where it's like Mar- where Marius GNN is is like kind of suboptimal and kind of what are the limitations of it at the moment? You know, there is this. There is this. We didn't talk about it like super detailed, but there is still this, even with the sort of new partition replacement policies that we have and the sort of new techniques in Mars GNN to 
to help disk-based accuracy. There is still the potential that disk-based training gets you a little bit lower accuracy than if you were to train with a full graph in memory. Of course, if that's an issue for you, then MarsGen has the option to do CPU, GPU training, but you'll have to pay for uh, enough CPU memory to do that. And and one problem that 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 Marius does have is if you do pay for a large CPU machine um, to do CPU GPU training, then you may get a lot of GPUs. And at, at the time, Marius GNN only had a single GPU support. So we've we've since worked on that and and sort of got multi GPU support. But that's that's sort of relatively recent, and it's not even you know, sort of available quite yet on on GitHub. But that that's coming. And then there are some other like you know, limitations, one, lim- one limitation compared to DJL and PyG is, is sort of like, um, development support, documentation, um, ease of use in some sense, like Marius is written in C++ and we've been working on a Python bindings, but they're not, they're not fully sort of supported yet. Uh, so it definitely can be a little bit harder to work with in those systems, especially if you need to sort of write some custom models or, or code or whatever. Um, but we're, we're trying to sort of work on the engineering and the usability aspect as well. And then the last piece is like, it, it doesn't quite have a distributed, like a multi-CPU machine yet um, implementation as well. Uh, but that's another thing we have sort of on our list as well to do. Yeah, you preempted my next question now, because yeah. where do you go next with, with, with Marish and, and sort of the overall project? But I guess kind of focus on the usability, working on multi-CPU, those things kind of what's on the roadmap for the next sort of, yep. I don't know, six to yeah, six the, na- the next yeah. like sort of main research piece is yeah. like a distributed version, you know, mm-hmm. so how can you maintain a hundred percent GPU utilization when you have many GPUs and many machines? Um, you just, you know, that's sort of the next research piece. And then, yeah, there's a lot of engineering work that, that, that can always be done to sort of, you know, make the, make the, for everything from the installation to the, you know, to the ease of, to the, you know, writing your own models to, to sort of pre-processing, post-processing, all the sort of things that, that people want when they want to actually use it for an application. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that um, that's sort of one angle that I don't, I mean, it's harder to kind of get put uh, papers published in it when it's focused on usability. People care about numbers and like things going faster. Rather yeah, than that's, like, this piece of software is more usable, right? Uh, yeah. Right. That's a, that's a sort of like PhD versus, you know, startup difference a little bit right um you know in your phd yeah. it does not necessarily bonus points for <laughs> you have yeah. to get papers in the phd but... well that's it right yeah and um, cool so yeah so i guess kind of this next question is kind of what impact do you think it can have longer term and also what impact has, has marius gnn had already have you seen much use of it in already are people that out there using it or what's the feedback like yeah, so hope. I mean, our hope is that you know we've we've open sourced it, and we're we, like we said, we're working on making it easy to use. It's not it's not perfect yet, but we're working on mm-hmm. it, and we, we we hope that that allows sort of like researchers um, in many you know science scientific areas, many different areas, to sort of easily and and sort of quickly train GNNs on their own data, right, and then therefore enables them to sort of do to to sort of further their research research in a way that maybe it was too expensive or, or too difficult to do without Mars GNN. So that's, that's kind of the, the goal. And yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a lot of people, we've had a good number of people tra- starting to use it on GitHub and, and, you know, posting questions and, and interacting with it. So I, overall, I've been happy with the, how, how people have seen the system and, and the number of people trying to start using the system and motivates us to keep, keep making it better. And, 
giving more functionality for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was really reward, uh, rewarding seeing kind of yeah. your actual research be used by people and having that feedback loop, right? It goes back to that sort of, of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it goes back to that sort of initial, um, you know, motivation for ML systems, right? Where you sort of get to build these things, which are, you know, actually like cloned and, and used, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. was, I mean, I kind of just on a tangent. I know a lot of my work in my PhD, like, I mean, someone might read the paper one day and do a thing, but like the implementation is probably just going to be stay like dead somewhere like GitHub, and no one's ever going to look at it again, which is pretty sad. So it's really nice that you have that feedback. Yeah. Feedback loop for sure. Um, cool. So I guess when you've been work- working on this project, so you've been on it quite a long time. What's the, maybe the most, like the most interesting thing you've kind of, you've learned from working on this? Um, so I, I think the thing that stands out to, to myself and, and Jason as well, I mean, I, I alluded to a little bit at the beginning, but it, there's sort of this very interesting kind of interplay and, and sort of even like trade-off almost between like algorithms and implementation, right? So for example, this dense data structure, the algorithm in itself is sort of, you know, you're going to reuse the samples. Okay, there's an algorithm to construct dense, there's an algorithm to use dense, right? Um, and, and we knew those for maybe like three months before we actually reduced the sampling time sufficiently. And and the reason was that it's it was actually very difficult to implement those algorithms, the dense construction and using dense um, well. It was very able to implement them at, at high performance, and and so and we we found that kind of consistent across a lot of things where you can spend like a lot of time on an algorithm and it has good complexity, but it won't work actually because you know the implementation is very important as well. Or vice versa, you know, you can just have a very simple algorithm, but the differences in implementation are, are can be enormous. Um, so that that that's one thing that's I think that stood out um, to me, just the importance of implementation mm. um, to to actually achieve high performance has been something I think that maybe goes under the radar a little bit in some of these systems designs. Um, so even like you know in the paper. A lot. This is you know. It's not. It's not in the paper, right? Because it's it's not really new in the sense of like. But but the implementation was very important in the end. That's 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 something I think I think I found pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, a good idea implemented badly, just just isn't going to get a good performance, right? Like, yeah, the best idea in the world. But if you've got some uh, hacky implementation of it, then yeah, it's going to be it's not going to work, right? Um, It's cool. Uh, Do do you have any sort of like um, kind of war stories along that sort of journey as well? Like things you tried that failed, that dead end you ran into that might be interesting for listeners to know. I I do have one war story where we we when we were originally implementing these sort of new disk based policies, we were getting really bad accuracy, and we were very confused. And we were you know we were for months, like maybe like three months. And in the end, what the the issue was is that we were using like p read and p write function calls, right, in C++. And those have a limited block size, right? So in other words, you can only read like two gigabytes or write two gigabytes. Um, and anything other than that, you, you basically just get like junk, like random bytes, right? And that, I mean, yeah, we, we, we just missed it in the sort of like docs, right? But yeah. That led to, you know, you get these, you get these silent failures in ML where it's not like actual, you know, compile error or runtime error, right? But the error just shows up in poor accuracy. And okay. So you don't know where along, there's no actual like, you know, there's no error you can look at. You just see, you get poor accuracy. That's the only feedback you get. 
And you have to sort of like figure out where that's coming from. And this was one of those, which took a long, long time, like, you know, months. Oh, wow. Yes. And we weren't even really, you know, we didn't even really know it was a bug, right? We just were like, man, maybe displaced training doesn't work, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But it it turns out that you can only read and write two gigabytes at a time or like whatever the the max in in 32 is. Oh, crazy. You'll never forget that now. That'll be ingrained in your brain. No, yeah. Well, now now I say P write rappers. Key right, wrapper rapper yeah. as much as you yeah. want and it'll break it up into two gig chunks nice yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's cool. that, was, that was that was rough yeah ah oh, that's that's too funny yeah it's interesting i never obviously not that sort of i'm that much experience sort of like like kind of in the ml world so like that's that silent failure there of like you just get bad accuracy it's like damn like how do you yeah. go back and I don't f- figure out where in the whole pipeline that this is coming from oh like, yeah. yeah it's just a bad approach so like how do you like yeah, exactly no exactly yeah. There, right? so, yeah yeah this oh, one cool. we almost were ready to give up on the displays training really because it was so long and i looked at so many things and yeah it's, so eventually i got it which was i mean i kind of thought that it was always should have been better like i was pretty surprised <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it worked for the simple models in the original marius you see and it didn't work for the gnns but we had also rewritten a lot of code and, I, and it was yeah, it was an that was that was the worst for sure i bet yeah i bet you slept so well the night after you found it be like that was that was lovely just yeah yeah oh cool yeah i guess the kind of is your main sort of like uh work all around mario so do you have any other research kind of going on at the moment as well yeah so i I think you know back to the very beginning um Mm. in general i'm just trying to make training more efficient and there's a lot of options you have to do that, right? You can focus on the system, you can focus on the model, you can focus on the data. Um, I've done a little bit in sort of each of those those pieces, focusing on the systems with like Marius, Marius GNN. Um, you know, we have some some new systems we're working on. Uh, I've done a little bit in terms of just making the models more efficient in the sense of compressing the model during training. I did a little bit of work on that and using the sort of activations fact that the activations are low rank um and then more recently done a little bit on sort of trying to compress the data a lot of people have been working on like data pruning these days how can you train to the same accuracy using sort of a subset instead of the full data set um so so looked in that into that recently but yeah at a high level how can we make how can we make training more efficient you know nice i guess the whole drill sorry sorry guys yeah how can we make it to like humans right where you just see one or two examples and then you're seeing you know what a dog is yeah yeah yeah. i guess yeah. the holy grail sort of system as well kind of factors in all these different areas that like it combines stuff to do with the model to do with the data to do with infrastructure, yep. whatever it brings all those things together and yep. sort of like some i don't know some i mean some say what so the, what would be the most advanced system that would bring all these things together at the moment what is the sort of state of the art of state of the art or is it all is it, is it most things just focus on one specific thing so, I mean, I think, I think that was kind of, I mean, maybe in the news, you've seen like Mosaic, right? Their, their recent mm, sale, yeah. their original sort of maybe idea, right? Which was to just focus on giving you a platform to sort of efficiently train on your own data. And, and that platform had lots of tricks and, and efficient training and efficient implementations sort of internally. And, and, you know, they've, they've transitioned to sort of LLMs a little bit, but still giving you the ability to sort of train you know, on your own data cheaply and efficiently. Um, so, you know, I mean, the Holy Grail is kind of is, is maybe similar to that where 
you have some system which just takes in user data and somehow it, it analyzes it and in sort of efficiently decides first what data it needs from that full data that the user provided, what's the most important data, then it then it sort of efficiently and automated automatically decides what's the efficient model, uh, the, you know, most efficient model that I need to train on this data uh, to achieve, you know, whatever the user wants to achieve. And then you've sort of selected high quality data and a high quality efficient model. And then you have some sort of actual systems implementation that goes and actually runs it well in some distributed trainings cluster or on a single machine or, or whatever. Right. But, you know, those, those are, difficult questions to sort of automatically decide what's important data, what model will achieve good accuracy for low cost, et cetera. Right. We'll get that one day. (laughs) Yeah, we probably will. I mean, we're, that's kind of, you know, it's not so far from what some of these, these new companies have been trying to do, like even like mosaic, um, they had that like software suite that kind of like picked a set of model optimizations to, to use to sort of, um, I can't remember what it's called, but Cool. So yeah, my next question, uh, next question, Roger, is my is my favorite question of, of all, and it's about the creative process. And I love seeing how people's answers, answers to this question diverge. So the question is that how how do you approach generating ideas, and then how do you for, determine which ones to select? Like, how what's your creative process? Yeah. So for me, it's all about like really simple examples that you can really analyze really well. So I like to like make little prototypes in Python. And then that that's kind of like, then you have the the fork in the road where it's like, okay, I, I did this little prototype, you know, very simple. And then you, you sort of, is it going to work at scale? Is it worth sort of pursuing for sure for, for longer effort? So like I was recently working on a problem, which is like a, a little bit like of a, can we do basically a, an alternative to back propagation? And so, was, you know, can I implement this? for one or two layers in python no biases just weights just super simple dense layers like each layer is y equals matrix times vector w times x and then you you know you 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 can very quickly dive very deep into that process you know so can you beat back propagation for this two-layer simple network and you know you can try very many things you can get very into the into the weeds and then but then you also sort of don't spend too much time right it's it's a might be 100 lines of python uh, but it's a very simple prototype and that allows you to you know say no we can't we can't very easily beat back propagation without having to go you know into like transformers and and c plus plus and all these complicated things so that's kind of my that's kind of my how i i work on problems i like to prototype and i like to sort of even if even if people have done it before, I like to prototype just to, to see the problem myself, see what's actually hard about the problem. But, you know, there are a lot of other things that are involved, right? For how, how do you decide what, what pro- problems to prototype, what problems to think about? That's, you know, that's a little bit kind of random in some sense, maybe, but you get that from papers, from, you know, talking to, to Theo, my, my advisor and talking with you know, other people and stuff. And, that's, 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 I've, never, yeah. I've never had that answer before. So it's, they're all they're so great because everyone's answers always so different. So like, yeah, that idea of like prototyping stuff and working and feeling things out there, feeling things out of that, and kind of getting an intuition for it and understanding the problem that way. Again, yeah, that's such a great way of doing things. Like, I really love yeah, I have this like uh, pie charm 
project, which is just like experimental. And it just that that's like the overall folder. And then there's just like a thousand subfolders, <laughs> just like random things. I've tried so many random things. Oh, that's 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 fantastic. Uh, great. Anyway, so it's it's time for the like the last question now, Roger. So it's like, what's the one thing you want the listener to take away from this podcast today? So I think the in one sentence, maybe the the main thing from Marius and Marius GNN is to sort of first maximize the resources you have, maximize the use of the resources you have uh, before scaling out to more resources. I think that's the, that's the takeaway from maybe Mars and Mars GNN in one sentence. Um, and you know, we're not the, we're not the first to say that, right. As you mentioned, like the cost of papers, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it's important to sort of revisit that as we have these very complex distributed machine learning deployments. Um, fantastic uh let's end it there and it's been a uh, brilliant talking to you roger if there's interested to know more about roger's work we'll put links to everything in the show notes so you can go find it and again if you if you enjoy the show please do consider supporting us through buying me a coffee and we'll see you all next time for some more awesome computer science research